0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do.
1: In this episode, we were joined by Dr. Nick Zoromsky. Dr. Zoromsky is a liver and pancreas surgeon at Indiana University. Dr. Zoromsky gave us a masterclass on pancreatitis, covering everything from classification to endoscopic management to percutaneous drainage. We have a very special treat for our listeners at the end of this episode, so stay with us.
0: Can you tell us where you grew up, uh, what that was like, and then uh, maybe walk into your training pathway uh, along the way in, in medicine and surgery?
2: I'd be happy to chat and Amir. it's it's a real privilege to be here, and i i'd, I'd uh, I don't think I'd be going out too far on a limb to say most of your listeners probably don't know me. but uh, in any event, it's nice to to contribute to this excellent, the excellent forum. So you know i um I am currently a professor of surgery at the Indiana University School of Medicine. I've been here for the last sixteen years. This is really uh, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, nobody in my family was in medicine, but I really enjoyed biology and I enjoyed people. And it seemed like medicine would be a good uh, career fit. And it certainly has been. I trained, I went to medical school um, at the Medical College of Ohio, and which has subsequently changed the name to the University of Toledo Medical School that was in Toledo, Ohio. And also did my general surgery residency at the same institution. I did, after two years of general surgery residency, I got connected with a guy named Mike Saar, who is um, a GI surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. He, Mike worked at the Mayo Clinic for his career in Rochester, Minnesota. And I moved to Rochester, Minnesota and did two years of basic science research under Mike's tutelage. And I will tell you, he was and continues to be um, one of the finest mentors anybody could ever hope for and a, and a great friend. And so you know, hugely influential on my on my pathway in academic surgery. And somewhere along the line, you know, I got turned on to pancreatic surgery. And I think we may talk about this a little bit later, but um, I realized that I would need to get a little bit of extra training to, to call myself a legitimate pancreatic surgeon. And so right at that time, Keith Lillamo and Henry Pitt had um, come to Indiana and established a an HPB Surgery Fellowship. This was one of the first ones that was accredited by the the Fellowship Council, and so I was the first HBB Fellow at IU in 2005, and then subsequently, um, Dr. Lilimo offered me a job, and uh, impossible to say no to that to that offer. Working with this group, and and here I am, and now suddenly, you know, a decade and a half down the road, you know, here we are. And then, and and of course, we've had a series of tremendous fellows, much better than me, following me, including Dr. Chad Ball.
1: Interviewed a lot of HPB surgeons, and they all seem to have this shared love of kind of the complexity of the surgery and and the pancreas. It, what drew you specifically to uh, becoming a, a pancreatic surgeon?
2: Well, the the technical complexity of the operations for sure is um, is a draw to to all of us. Um, I also really enjoyed the heterogeneous nature of these disease processes, both benign inflammatory pancreatic disease and malignant pancreatic disease, and the fact that there's a huge amount of thought and decision-making that goes into both treatment planning and, a lot of times, the intraoperative decision-making with these, with these operations. This is pancreatic surgery, but also, obviously, um, you know, hepatobiliary surgery as well. And I think that really, um, the, you know, the... One of the most attractive things is that there's a lot of room to go. If you think about the diseases of the pancreas, we have um, one of my first mentors as a guy. I, I mean, I, I think also the thing that is critical is having mentors and and guys and, and a man named John Howard was um, very John. John Howard, I met in Toledo when I was a medical student. John was probably in his early 70s at that point. And John is one of the fathers of pancreatic surgery in the world. He was um, an army surgeon in the Korean conflict and in charge of the Army Research Unit. And I would really encourage anybody who's listening here to take a look into John Howard. He was so humble, um, but such a giant in surgery. He had he contributed significantly to the development of the trauma systems um, in the United States and across the world. And and he tackled pancreatic surgery and it was really some of John's work in the 60s um, 1960s at a time when people were calling for a moratorium on pancreatic surgery that that um, the mortality of a Whipple was near 25% and John presented a paper in the late 60s 1968 to the American Surgical with 42 patients i believe with zero mortality and that really emboldened pancreatic surgeons to continue along the along the track so you know, my interactions with John, obviously, were, were critical. Um, but he pointed out to me that, I mean, his words were, we are barely at first base in terms of understanding the pancreatic diseases. And, and unfortunately, you know, now nearly 20 years later, we're still at first base. So for 300,000 Americans every year who get pancreatitis, there's no therapy beyond support. So I think the chance to really move the field, to really investigate these diseases, and, um, and 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 understand them better and identify points for intervention, is is a very attractive part of pancreatic surgery to to everybody. So, anyway, sorry for the long winded answer, but um, you know you're talking about something I love. So.
0: No, that's 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 perfect, Nick. And your your description is is uh, is dead on. Of course, you, you know John Howard. There's no question is is a giant in in many things, including pancreas. But you know, you've become really a, an international thought leader in terms of pancreatitis. And I think our audience is getting a little flavor of that up front. So we wanted to maybe leverage that and 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 get you to talk about pancreatitis and and walk re- really what would be a large general surgery community primarily. Uh, trainees and faculty uh, through some of the the current issues and that you've done so much work on I, I was wondering if you could start with just a general sense of prognosticating acute pancreatitis obviously ransons is the classic example but how do these scoring systems whether you are Ranson's, glasgow and and so on i think there's seven or eight of them uh, um do they do they are they clinically useful how do you use them um how good are we at predicting who's going to get really sick and who's not
2: yeah, I mean that's a. <laughs> you're leading off with one of the one of the real open areas in pancreatitis, and, and I'll I'll um, preface these thoughts by by, um, by disclosing the fact that I practice at a university medical center that's a quaternary medical center, and we so we have a huge necrotizing pancreatitis population. We don't have an ER at our hospital anymore, you know. So I don't see people in the ER who are coming in with abdominal pain. I see people who have been outside for two weeks and they're not getting better. That's, those are the, the main pancreatitis patients that we take care of predominantly. So having said that though, um, once you identify somebody with pancreatitis, I, I honestly think that clinical judgment is probably as good as Apache, Ranson, Glasgow, the Marshall score, the SOFA index, you know um, that you need to be a, a doctor. You need to be a clinician and pay attention to the patient and be aware of the baseline. You know, an 80 year old person with marginal kidneys and, and underlying coronary disease and diabetes is not going to take a joke. And so when you see an 80 year old person with pancreatitis, regardless of etiology, you know, that patient needs to be in a very monitored, uh, a situation that's closely monitored, you know, put that guy in the ICU Put a Foley catheter in them, make sure that they're making urine. Also be aware of the other end of the spectrum. You know, when you see a 20 year old person, they can have a pretty severe disease brewing and they can hide it. It's like the trauma patient who's good, you know, until they fall off the cliff, you know, they reach that point in the Starling curve and they, you know, or the, the point in the, in the bleeding where they just can't keep up. So there are some, you, you very, very useful, um, Markers, for example, urinary trypsinogen activating peptide, has been shown in in strong research. Some of the interleukins, interleukin two and interleukin eight, particularly the pro-inflammatory cytokines, um, are very good predictors. But unfortunately, those tests are really not available widely in clinical use. So, and each one of those scoring indices has its own limitation. For example, the Apache score. I was just um, thinking about writing uh, working on an editorial. You know, the Apache is great, but it's really cumbersome if you try to put that into practice in clinical practice. The um, Ranson, Ranson's what they call the grave signs. And by the way, we are two degrees of separation from John Ranson, John H.C. Ranson, the, the um, very thoughtful surgeon who worked in New York City. Um, Ranson's criteria came from a retrospective chart review. Of 100 patients with with severe pancreatitis, and they are still very accurate. But the obvious problem with Ranson's grave signs is that you need 48 hours to predict who's going to get sick. So, so that uh, I guess what I would say is, pay close, have a very healthy respect for the disease, especially in the first 48 hours. People who get sick with pancreatitis, who who get really sick, typically declare themselves early. So, if you have a healthy respect, have a low threshold for high for close monitoring. Make sure the patients and organs are perfusing. These people, you know, it's been described as a burn in the retroperitoneum that totally soaks up volume, you know. So the mistake that's made consistently is underplaying this and and not giving people enough volume. And then you come in the next morning and the guy's in acute renal failure because, you know, people are afraid to put them into pulmonary edema. So, so, I think the summary is that, that clinical, clinical intuition, in my mind, is really probably as good in this day and age as any of these scoring indices. But this is an outstanding area of research.
1: You know, the, the next thing I think is important that's important to kind of review for our listeners, uh, just given the heterogeneity still with which uh, people kind of talk about pancreatitis, whether it's surgeons or gastroenterologists or radiologists. Um, it, and um, would be to go over the Atlantic criteria. Can you briefly kind of go over the Atlantic criteria and uh, why that was so important for standardizing the way that we talk about pancreatitis?
2: I think the most important, so the Atlantic criteria for um, for people who are not, who, who don't work routinely in, in pancreatitis is based on a consensus conference. And, and the first consensus conference And and the first consensus conference convened in Atlanta. It was published in in 1992, actually, in the Archives of Surgery um, by a guy named Ed Bradley. And the goal of that meeting was to try to come up with some consistent definitions. The Atlanta um, group evolved and met again and it took like five or six years to do this. It was all done remotely. The current one was published ba- is published in Gut um, in 2013, and Peter Banks, who's a gastroenterologist at, um, in Boston, is the first author on that group, and there are a number of gastroenterologists and surgeons, and Mike, Mike Sar was a big um, promoter of that. Second, the revision of the Atlanta classification, and again, the goal is to get everybody singing from the same page in terms of what is, um, what are we talking about? Perhaps the most important thing, and, and so out of the revised Atlanta criteria, um, there, there came three classes, mild acute pancreatitis, moderately severe acute pancreatitis, and severe acute pancreatitis. And, and that's really based on organ failure and the persistence of organ failure. So the um, moderately severe pancreatitis as people with organ failure that resolve, and severe acute pancreatitis has persistent organ failure. That's the fundamental, um, you know, basic definitions. And then there are uh, there are other very important definitions, including the recognition of an earlier and later phase of the disease. Um, and perhaps most importantly is def- defining what are all these intra abdominal fluid collections that and necrosis that happens in patients with severe acute pancreatitis. So as a baseline, about, about 80% of people with, with acute pancreatitis, again, regardless of etiology, will have um, have relatively mild, self-limited course of the disease. And then about 10 to 15% will have severe acute pancreatitis with variable necrosis of the pancreatic parenchyma and the peripancreatic soft tissue. And those, those are the patients, the severe acute pancreatitis, necrotizing pancreatitis patients, are the ones that we as surgeons are interested in, you know, as HPB surgeons, because we're called on to treat these um, these patients. And and again, I think we're going to talk in a little more detail about how this treatment has evolved. But the definitions are um, wall, uh, are defining the early peripancreatic fluid collections. And then over the course of the next few weeks, as the body consolidates these collections and the tissue that's dead defines itself, then that becomes um, what's called walled-off necrosis, or W-O-N. And the the necrosis, again, like I mentioned, can involve either the pancreas um, or the peripancreatic soft tissue, or both. In, In many cases, it's both. So again, the Atlanta classification um is is a um has been an, an important document that helps us define consistently what are these what are these phases of pancreatitis and what are some of the collections i would be remiss not to mention the tremendous work of john windsor uh who's a a new zealander and a brilliant guy and john and his group have proposed something called the determinant classification that that i would encourage everybody to look up as well um, perhaps not as widely used as the atlanta but really important because it looks you know sort of at functionality and what's happening through the um through the course of the disease
0: that's such an eloquent uh, description nick and i'm glad you brought you know the the latter classification up as well I don't know what your what your experience over the years is, but certainly within Canada and my experience was in the US Oftentimes everyone uses the term pseudocyst like everything's a pseudocyst in a, in a radiologic report And maybe that's because they don't have the context of, of time um, You know that something's not a pseudocyst at, at a week per se um, But I sort of think of that the, the lexicon of the atlanta symposium very much like the language of grades of, of you know, injuries in, in polytrauma or staging in terms of cancer. And both of those two things have had really good uptake. But for some reason, the there still seems to be significant heterogeneity in terms of clinicians understanding and, and using that relatively common lexicon in, in our world. Why, why do you think that is?
2: I think we just have to keep uh, pounding that message, you know, I, I agree with you hundred percent. This is the single most um, misused term in pancreatitis is pseudocyst. I think that, and we see it here, um, thankfully not so much at our place, but at but a lot of places, even major places that the radiologist will call any collection a pseudocyst. That's a critical distinction is what is inside that collection, because if you stick a drain or you you know, from whatever angle, percutaneous or endoscopic, into a, a big chunk of solid, dead, walled off necrosis, you've contaminated the necrosis. I mean, the 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 concept of how much necrosis does one of these collections contain has tremendous implications in terms of therapy. So that was one of the main goals of of the Atlanta, of the revised Atlanta classification to make sure, people are using this terminology appropriately. And again, still, um, you know, I mean, we're still trying to get the message out with a lot of these things. Um, so the other point, Chad, is that this, these collections are dynamic over time. You brought up the point of time. And even in one person over a week and two weeks and three weeks and a month and three months, the collections will evolve even solid necrosis a lot of times the necrosis will liquefy and turn into a, a, a collection that has a lot more fluid in it than it did maybe in the beginning. The final point about pseudocyst is anytime you think about a collection around the pancreas, pseudocyst included, the clinician must consider the pancreatic ductal anatomy. Mm-hmm. I think that if anybody, if there's one take home point from this whole podcast is if you're seeing somebody with pancreatitis, and there's a collection, you got to know what's going on with the pancreatic duct because that really, really has a
0: major impact on treatment. Oh, that's, that's so well said. So, you know, maybe to explore that just a little bit farther and unpack it, you know, as, as Amir would say, um, essentially the integrity of the main pancreatic duct will drive you left or drive you right, meaning that if it is intact, the prognosis and the treatment of that patient will be fundamentally different than if it's side branch leaks or something smaller. Would you say that's accurate?
2: Uh, absolutely, yeah. We see in, in all kinds of patients um, major disruptions in the pancreatic. So if the pancreatic parenchyma is involved with necrosis, that's a, that's a much, much more challenging disease process to manage than somebody who has even necrosis of the pancreas, even infected necrosis, but it's all extra pancreatic.
0: Yeah, precisely. You know, I would argue too that, and I think you would agree probably that, you know, the left disconnected pancreatic remnant are probably our most challenging cases full stop.
2: It, it, that's a very common, um, very, very common problem that we see. We we actually looked at our, our whole experience with disconnected pancreatic duct syndrome. Tom Mottman, again, um, one of our one of our outstanding surgery residents and research residents just published this paper in the in the Journal of Surgical Research this year and l- looked at 647 necrosis patients and 46% of them had the disconnected pancreatic duct syndrome. So that's, you know, again, and our, our experience is biased for sure because of our um, because of our referral pattern as a tertiary referral or quaternary referral place. But yeah, those are really tough problems.
0: Yeah, I love that paper. That was that was so well done. Um, I was hoping maybe we could shift gears a little bit here. And still stick with pancreatitis for our listeners, but maybe uh, short snappers or not so short snappers in terms of some some broad headings. I was yeah. wondering if you could talk about antimicrobial therapy in particular, whether that's you know empiric, prophylactic, or of course therapeutic. How do you define that and uh, and how do you look at that? And I, I will reference, of course, Tom Howard's editorial from many years ago in the annals, which I still think stands the test of time.
2: As good as it gets is the, is the title, and as good as it, he was commenting on Patch Dellinger's multicenter trial where they tried prospectively to give people empiric antibiotics or not, and found like every other trial that empiric antibiotics did not decrease the mortality or morbidity of the disease. So the practice pattern should be as a short snapper, as you say, uh, don't give people empiric antibiotics. Treat defined infections for a defined period of time. If you're in a situation where you're concerned about infected necrosis, then I think it's okay to give somebody um, empiric antibiotics, not prophylactic antibiotics, but with the caveat that you are treating that patient, you're treating them for presumed infected necrosis, but you still have to search, that doesn't um, stop the search for the infection.
0: This might be getting a little bit nuanced, but sticking with the the concept of infection, there's been a number of papers that have come out, um, I'd say five that I am aware of anyway, over the past three to four years that look at essentially the outcome in patients with infected versus non-infected necrosis, both in the intensive care unit and outside of it. And it seemed, all that literature, and I think it's supported anecdotally from what high volume centers like yours and ours see, the presence of infection, although as a category, infected necrosis may do worse than uninfected necrosis, but in the individualized patients, lots of them are, quote unquote, have infected pancreatic necrosis and their clinical trajectory Is really quite easy. And then the opposite of that can be true as well, presumably from an inflammatory driver as opposed to an infectious driver and the genetic response to that. So I was wondering if you could comment on the realities of infected necrosis because, you know, certainly as a trainee back when it was all about do we stick a needle in and define, you know, (laughs) define uh, what's infected and then operate on it. it. It seemed to be very messy. And I think it comes back now, at least in our practice, to look at the patient and make the call based on that. So what's your sense on about infected versus non-infected necrosis?
2: I I think it's really I this is a great topic and and definitely I don't I mean this is in the weeds for sure but I love it down in here in the weeds, you know. I mean the problem with any of these papers ours included that try to define infected necrosis is that those numbers are wildly inaccurate. You know, there are people without gas in the necrosis who have infection. I mean if you look back at Carlos Fernandez Del Castillo did a tremendous paper in the annals, man, I think probably 207 or 2010 or something, it, I mean, one of the main points was that when those guys operated and they cultured necrosis, mm-hmm. when they operated for sterile necrosis, a, 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 a nearly a, a third of the patients, if I remember correctly, a substantial number of the patients had unexpected infection. That's right. The, 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 the Dutch group has shown that too, and we've shown that too. And then on the other hand, when you culture people who you know are infected, and then you go to the to the OR and clean them out, but they've been on antibiotics for 72 hours, a lot of times you don't get an accurate culture, and so they don't grow anything, you know. So do you say that person is non-infected because because you weren't able to culture it, even though you know that clinically and maybe they have gas in the necrosis? You know, so I think that the number one is those numbers are really inaccurate. Number two is I agree um wholeheartedly that we need to be clinicians and treat the patient however if a patient has infected necrosis that is a catabolic focus in their body and they are not going to get better unless that gets treated there are some people who get better completely simply with antibiotic therapy with infected necrosis the vast majority of the patients however need some sort of intervention to evacuate the necrosis and again it is a trap to fall into to just think somebody looks good and put them on antibiotics and send them home for a month. And then if they're not getting through there, or when you select the resistant organisms or fungus in the retroperitoneum, then their physiology deteriorates to the point. And unfortunately, sometimes we see to the point where they're not salvageable anymore. So infected necrosis is a big problem, in my opinion. And Yes, there's a there I agree with you, Chad, completely that there's a there's a huge variance. And a lot of it depends on the host. You know, that's the why that, that's the thing, you know. We are we, we, and again, I mean, stop me when you need to because we could talk about I could talk about this all day, but we are looking at at more accurate objective metrics. Elliot Yee is a, a medical student here, he's at Colorado now doing his residency, did a tremendous job. We're looking for a dynamic frailty index. You know, something that replaces that expert clinician's gut feeling. What are we looking for? Look at the PNI, you know, look at the nutritional index with the, you know, something that can be applied dynamically through the course of this three-month, four-month, six-month disease to say, okay, this guy is not getting better. It's time to step it up to the next size drain, to a new drain, time to take him to the OR, before we reach that inflection point in the physiology where they're not going to tolerate a major intervention, does that make sense?
1: Totally, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of nutrition, um, I think this is this is a topic that perhaps is getting more traction, particularly uh, among newer trainees. But um, you know, there's there's been a lot of dogma historically about nutrition in in pancreatitis. Um, can you for our listeners? Can you just talk about um, what the the evidence is around early nutrition, and and how do you sort of approach that for pancreatitis patients?
2: So I, I'll I'll tell you, you know, again, um, I I was involved with Karen Horvath, my my dear friend from Washington uh, University of Washington, and um, a GI group led by a young guy from Hopkins, who we were tasked with prospectively looking or, or trying to to look at. Um, systematically all the evidence on nutrition and, and necrotizing and <laughs> It's all over the board. So the, the take-home message is, and again, trying to do this a little more quickly, it, nutrition is critical. Early enteral feeding is okay for some. Feed the gut when you can. It's not tolerated by many. And so in our experience, most people require, at least in the early phase, which to me is the first few months of necrotizing pancreatitis, most people require some combination of enteral and supplemental parenteral nutrition to achieve adequate caloric and protein um, balance, again, in this really massively catabolic state. The other point is that the, that the stomach just doesn't work in a lot of people. That the small bowel works in, in a lot of people, but especially in people with a big retrogastric collection, you know that's the main inflammatory response. And there's a gastric ileus. So I'm a huge fan of the gastrojejunostomy feeding tube, where you can vent the G part. You can get all the tubes out of the guy's nose. You can vent the G. You can feed the J, and at least you can feed some. Um, nutrition into the gut. We published a paper about, you know, you know, PAG-J and, and Naso-J Feeding Tube. Alex Roach is one of our, another great um, resident. Too. Alex will be our HPB fellow next year, did that work and, uh, and found that both of them are well tolerated. But feed the gut when you can, but it doesn't always tolerate nutrition. Now the third, the, the next level of thought here is that a lot of patients have mesenteric venous thrombosis in this disease. This is an underrecognized recognized and, and another wildly unknown swamp you know, in terms of what to do. But what I'll tell you is that patients with SMV thrombus don't tolerate enteral nutrition, and, and we have a very low threshold to make sure that they get adequate um, TPN support, total parenteral nutrition. Again, thinking about what's the consequence to the liver, especially if the hepatic blood flow is compromised, and are there anything you know special TPN things like carnitine or uh, things that you can do to potentially minimize steatosis from the TPN?
0: So glad you brought that up, Nick. You know you've done some tremendous work. Your, your group there on thrombosis and, and in general the coagulation system uh, in pancreatitis patients, and you know the pleasure, as you know, of, of reviewing one of your upcoming manuscripts in Journal of American College that we'll link to in this podcast. But you know, can can you go over the concern about our under prophylaxis of these patients and why that is, and how we should maybe measure it and be more vigilant about it?
2: Sure. Thanks for the thanks for the pitch and thanks. There's a sweet editorial that accompanies that paper, by the way, in the JACS. So you should link to your editorial too, Chad. Um, again, this is a this is work. This is clinical work that's based on a clinical observation that necrotizing pancreatitis patients have a very high incidence of venous thromboembolic problems. And this includes both mesenteric venous thromboses that we were, that I was just talking about and extremity venous thromboses. And so um, we, we looked at this retrospectively and found that the incidence was 56%. That, that's a huge incidence. Alex Roach and Tom Mottman published that paper not so long ago. And then we instituted a prospective screening protocol of four extremity ultrasound screening on a weekly basis for necrotizing pancreatitis patients in, um, in the active course of the disease. This is really facilitated by our necrot- our pancreatitis nurse coordinator, Kathy McGreevy. And we can, you know, that's another line of discussion. But Kathy, I mean, and I'm mentioning all these people's names because these are the guys who are doing all the hard work. You know, it's, um, it's a real team effort. In any event, what we found was that, yes, indeed, we validated the finding that um, the, of this extremely high extremity DVT rate, and what we found is that by instituting um, anticoagulation, we prevented um, symptomatic pulmonary emboli in anybody who didn't have a contraindication for, for anticoagulation. Now that was all background. Getting to your question, Chad, which is the next layer of investigation is trying to figure out what is the mechanism of the, of this hypercoagulability of pancreatitis, and when we looked at, we have some preliminary data looking at factor 10A, and found uh, that we are we are under prophylaxing people with chemical prophylaxis, and so the next step in our um, in our, in this work is looking at developing an algorithm. Um, to to give people appropriate pro, appropriate prophylaxis there are a few caveats i mean well number 1 i also must acknowledge that i've stolen a lot of these ideas directly from the trauma literature so to you and all of your trauma pals you know thank you and you know sorry for stealing <laughs> stealing your stuff but um, but it applies also to these diseases the 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 one thing that we should discuss that's a potential at least theoretical concern in pancreatitis is the problem of bleeding when we when we give people very high doses of anticoagulation, and that's we haven't thankfully experienced um, major problems with bleeding up to this point. But that that definitely needs to be on the table, and especially in the circumstance where somebody may um, have a visceral arterial pseudo aneurysm uh, in too.
1: This is such a neat uh, line of, of investigation. Um, shifting gears a little bit, um, I'm curious what your thoughts are, and, and this is a real, I think, practical issue that, that again, sees a lot of controversy and a lot of heterogeneity across different institutions, but where do you see the role of uh, early ERCP uh, in pancreatitis? Is, this, is that something we should be doing? Is that... Uh, um, you know, are there certain situations where that's helpful? Like, for example, if the bilirubin is also concomitantly high, how do you sort of approach that in your mind?
2: So the question is, uh, in patients with biliary etiology, which ones will benefit from early ERCP? And the answer, I think, is real, is, is reasonably as clear as any in this field. There have been several prospective studies. Um, tr- primarily led by the GI groups. And so if somebody is not getting better clinically in 36, 48, 72 hours, in the first 72 hours, somebody who's failing to improve clinically with biliary pancreatitis and the, some of the liver chemistry numbers, bilirubin, alkaline, phosphatase, are climbing or not falling, those are the patients who should get an early ERCP. Early ERCP should not be done routinely. That's been um, shown pretty clearly. The caveat is that that's a, that this is a tough call because you can have edema of the interpancreatic common duct, especially with head necrosis and you know developing head involvement. Um, and so it, it's really helpful to to have a dialogue with an expert endoscopist involved with this um, with this process. When ERCP is undertaken, it's really important that the endoscopist doesn't inject the pancreatic duct because they don't want to um, exacerbate the inflammatory response in the pancreas, and they don't. We don't want to um, introduce bacteria into what's what is presumably a sterile in the early days as a sterile situation. So that's the you know the rub with doing ERCP is that you open the gateway to the gut and. Um, that that's a easy easy access for the gut
0: flora that's that's well summarized Nick, I, I want to transition a little bit now to, to the concept of drains, percutaneous drains in particular. Um, you, you know I, I know I know you know our senior partner Francis Sutherland well and I think every time a drain goes into one of our patients here a little piece of him dies <laughs> um, you know and you know I, I'll also maybe just frame it with the caveat that at centers like, yours and and ours we're very lucky because the interventional GI groups and the interventional radiologists and us were all so close and we all treat these patients together in such an important multidisciplinary multifaceted way I don't know how you treat these patients uh, in 2020 to best effect without these complex and heterogeneous groups, but you know having said that percutaneous strains do get put into these patients usually from saint elsewhere. Um, Tell us what what your overall view of putting drains in collections is with regard to maybe timing and selection and utility.
2: Well, I think that that's another, you hit another real take-home message, Chad, which is in this, treating necrotizing pancreatitis is a team sport. It's really critical to have a captain of the ship, and it doesn't matter who it is. In our, you know, I take ownership for a lot of these patients, but could be a gastroenterologist, could be an internist, could be a pulmonologist. Somebody's got to see these patients through this six-month course of disease. But there has to be input from the experienced gastroenterologist, experienced interventional radiologist for optimal treatment in this day and age. I And I feel Professor Sutherland's pain. You know, I mean, 20 years ago when I started doing this stuff, we saw somebody with a drain in them. That was heresy. Um, with, in, into a pancreatic collection, percutaneous drain. I think percutaneous drainage is is one of the most significant advances that we've seen over the past decade. And we we learned this from the PANTER study, from the Dutch Prospective Study, looking at the step-up approach. This was validated in Karen Horvath's study. The percutaneous drainage was introduced back in 1998 by um, Pat Freeney, who's a, a radiologist at the University of Washington. And I would highly recommend anybody interested in this work to read Pat Freeney's paper from 98 in American Journal of Radiology. Uh, That's seminal work. He identified the fact that people with disconnected duct don't do that well, you know. What we've learned about drainage and how we use it in this day and age, you know, percutaneous drainage is often the first step in um, the the step-up approach. Percutaneous drainage really, though, depends on the anatomy of the necrosis. And again, getting back to how do you treat these patients, it's such a heterogeneous disease that patient selection and the the patient individual situation, you know, how are they doing clinically? Is the necrosis infected, et cetera? What's their nutrition? And really important is the anatomy of the necrosis. Uh, A localized collection in the lesser sac, even with a disconnected tail, is pretty straightforward to treat. On the other hand, the patient with necrosis is extending down both paracolic gutters, including the lesser sac, you know, multi field necrosis and in a, in a duct disruption or SMV thrombus head involvement. I mean, that, that's a much different story. So, but in any event, if somebody has infected necrosis, especially if they have multiple field necrosis, we'll start with the percutaneous drain. And then Within the next few days, we re-image the patient to see what's happening to the collection, look at the patient's clinical progress. If we're making progress, then it, then we'll ride it out for a little while. If we're not making progress, if there's still a big volume of, of necrosis, we'll either upsize the drain, put another drain in to you know irrigate one vigorously and have a point of egress. We'll consider an endoscopic approach. The Virginia Mason group in Seattle has has championed the dual modality, so-called dual modality, percutaneous and endoscopic. But what we found is that consistently, at least a third of the patients will resolve their necrosis with percutaneous drainage only. And that's, you know, again, that's a huge, huge advance in treating this um, disease process. I would also like to refer anybody who's listening to the work of Rajesh Gupta and his group at the PGI in Chandigarh, India. Rajesh has, has, it does, it, it does tremendous work in pancreatitis. And those guys have published great work in the annals and other surgical journals about use of TPA, streptokinase, and most recently hydrogen peroxide. These, um, injecting the drain to try to break up and liquefy the solid necrosis. And again, John Windsor's group has done seminal work in this area too. John's looking at, um, trying to isolate the compounds in, in leach saliva, you know, which, which one of those, of those, com- I'm sorry, maggot saliva, not leech saliva. The, and that, you know, the maggots eat dead tissue, but they don't eat live tissue. And so which one of those compounds might be available? You know, we haven't sent them any in a while, but we, for a while, we were sending necrosis over to New Zealand so that those guys could take a look at which one of those compounds would liquefy the necrosis. So.
0: I, th- I think you, you've touched on so many important points there and, you know, I may, maybe I would take the liberty of summarizing it, which is, you know, at the end of the day, the multidisciplinary nature, again, is so critical because I think when people read, you know, you and I write a paper on transgastric necrosectomy, the perception from the outside is often like they operate on everything or you read a nice percutaneous paper. it's They put drains in everything. And really, that's not the case. When we sit on panels, we usually all agree on exactly what to do from all these different disciplines more often than not. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you're right. The the, the group has to be um, uh, a collective, and it has to be a single unit working together, you know, with lots of different heterogeneity, uh, heterogeneity and, and backgrounds. That's the only way we're going to get these patients better.
2: Super ter- terrific summary. I think we're inching there incrementally. I, I really think that, I mean... It's a heterogeneous disease. There are multiple approaches. Oftentimes, multiple approaches are useful for the same patient over time. And I think that we really, when I, I, a lot of times I'm invited, you know, like you say, I get, I'm known for this disease and I get called to to talk at at GI meetings. And a lot of times I'm the sacrificial surgeon on a panel of gastroenterologists. And and my message is, look, this is a team sport. I mean, we got to get away from the mentality that my way is better than your way. You know, GI is superior to surgery, surgery is superior to GI, percutaneous trumps everything. You know, that's it's just not true. Every every modality is important for for one patient or another. And the, the trick is figuring out which patient needs what approach and
0: when. Well, exactly. And the, and the other thing that you touched on that's so very important is the longitudinal care of these patients. Yeah. So you know, banging in a drain and walking away is not, is not going to be helpful. Um, putting an endoscopic stent in is not going to be helpful if you, if you do it once and you're not willing to take those patients back over and over and over and debride them through, you know, a big axiom stent or something. And the same thing applies to, to us. It's just that historically, I think in most places, surgery does provide that longer-term care as opposed to some of the other, other types of services. But certainly in, uh, in pancreatitis centers, um, that's clearly not the case.
2: You know, the the median time to recovery from necrotizing pancreatitis is almost six months for patients who don't die early. You know, this is a long-term problem. And and what we're finding out is some of the even longer-term sequelae, which are fascinating, you know, duodenal strictures, bile duct strictures, endocrine and exocrine insufficiency, you know, rare but crazy things like, uh, you know, I mean, we're looking right now Actively with a GI psychologist at what Marty Freeman termed post pancreatitis stress disorder. You know, every single one of these patients is depressed. Mm-hmm. When, the, when, when the surgeons are making this diagnosis, I'll tell you, it ain't subtle. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, but what can we do up front to intervene? You know, we borrowed some of your guys' work about um, mindfulness interventions. You know, we're going to apply some of that work. You know, I'm a musician, and I'm fascinated by the effect of music therapy. We're going to try to do some music therapy, you know, to try to get, you know, get some of these, uh, address some of these important holistic um, and long-term problems with
0: this. disease. Well, I mean, that's so, so beautifully said. And, you know, you, you, you dance on an indirect topic there, which is really how we communicate this to patients on an individual level. I mean, I, I learned from, from you guys, but usually up front, I say to these folks with really bad necrotizing pancreatitis that, you know, this is probably going to take a year out of your life. You're going to look back at 2018 and say, wow, that was a crazy year. And if it's shorter than that, I think they're happier. And um, the worst thing you can probably do is undersell it up front, especially if you're not, if you're not comfortable uh, with the diagnosis and the long-term management of these folks.
2: Yeah, I think that, that, that that's a fair take-home point for everything. Always paint the picture darker than it may be, you know. Then when they get better, they say, oh, man, Dr. Ball, he must be a great surgeon. I got better in six months instead of a year. Yeah. Smoking mirrors. Right. Speak- honesty, Dad. Honesty. That's the
1: key. <laughs> Speaking of, of operations, um your your group and, and, and the Calgary group collaborated on a great paper talking about transgastric necrosectomies. And it was interesting, you know, when we were studying for our uh, you know, our equivalent of the American board exams, the, the Royal College exams, talking to other uh, residents across the country, and uh, I'd say that probably the majority of institutions really didn't have a lot of people uh, doing necrosectomies this way. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly biased because I, I've had the opportunity to watch Dr. Ball and some of the other HPV surgeons in Calgary do this, and, and I think it's a great, great operation. Can you describe? What this operation is, and sort of why um, your groups really felt that this was uh, a, a good way of, of dealing with pancreatic necrosis.
2: Yeah, thanks for the for the shout out. I think that um, Michael Dreiger was the was the the one of your contemporaries, probably or or junior residents who was really um, really important. Did a lot of the important work here. Obviously, Dr. Ball shepherded this paper through. This was a multi-center study with with Calgary IU and Brendan Visser and his team down at Stanford. And so the question is, how do you approach somebody with a transgastric pancreatic debridement? First of all, determining which patient is appropriate for transgastric debridement is important. And so we highlight the fact in the manuscript that this is a really select group of patients with necrotizing pancreatitis, probably 15% at most. Of everybody with necrosis. And the ideal situation is somebody with necrosis that's confined to the lesser sac that with or without disconnected tail. If somebody has biliary pancreatitis, surgical transgastric debridement, and and transgastric debridement can be approached endoscopically too, of course. Um, There are trade-offs, but if somebody has, has biliary disease, you can take the gallbladder out and do a cholangiogram at the same time. The way we approach it, um, we've done a few of these laparoscopically, and we find that it's easy enough to do with a, a short upper midline incision. We use ultrasound religiously, and ultrasound helps define the. I mean, it's usually not hard to figure out where the location of the necrosis is, but you can see how much fluid and how much solid necrosis is there. You can see what the vascular flow is and the relationship of the necrosis to the to the vascular structures. You can interrogate the, the distal bile duct with ultrasound. Once you get good enough, that's it's, um, you know another advantage. I think it's important to think about the presence of portal uh, left side of portal hypertension. So the splenic vein often is thrombosed, and the, the short gastrics and the epiploics have huge varices. And so you can get into some some bleeding getting through the stomach, but we make an anterior gastrotomy, use the ultrasound to localize where we're gonna make our posterior gastrotomy. You can potentially um, get disoriented and get into the retroperitoneum, not into the necrosis. So that's, I would say, be careful trying to get through the back of the stomach. Oftentimes it bleeds. And if it bleeds, you gotta open it up a little more counterintuitively, you got to open it up so you can see what's bleeding. It's easy enough surgically to stop this venous bleeding with compression and suturing. I like to put a, a, a big GIA stapler to make a cystogastrostomy to make that hole as big as possible. I use a seam guard and then I oversew that whole thing with, uh, um, with a proline suture, again, because of the uh, potential venous bleeding in the wall of the stomach. Debreeding the necrosis is an art. And the trick is just take what comes out easily um, because you don't want to debride the anterior wall of the portal vein. Um, if there's a major hemorrhage, you can pack that area. Um, you need to pack it, especially if it's a big cavity, you got to pack it with a lot of laps. And then do your cochra maneuver so you can get your hand behind the SMB and the portal vein and give a little posterior pressure to see what you're into. But um, once you get the necrosis, breed it, irrigate it thoroughly, and then basically close the anterior stomach in whatever way you want. I think the stomach a lot of times is really thick, and so I like to sew everything rather than stapling the gut. Um, do a, do your cholecystectomy. Image the bile duct, please. Please, please image the bile duct in some way, shape, or form. In biliary pancreatitis, you don't want to leave a small stone. Um, and then, you know, again, depending on the clinical situation, you can put a feeding tube in, you can put a GJ tube in to decompress that stomach. If they haven't been able to eat, if it's somebody who's like walking wounded, you know, they've been home and eating, but they're just, um, you know, have early satiety and pain and flu like symptoms. I don't always put a GJ tube in, but I definitely, um, am not shy about that either. And so I'd say I, I, it's easy enough to get access to the gut. It's easy enough to pull that tube out when people don't need it. So that's sort of a summary of indications are important, uh, operative approach, do the gallbladder. And that's uh, we, we've actually published a few videos. Tom Mottman, M-A-A-T-M-A-N, is the first author on a couple of videos that are out there, one in journal GI surgery. Uh, I can't remember where the other one is, but there's some uh, intraoperative tricks in those videos.
0: Well, that's a perfect, eloquent, technical description. Um, you know, maybe just to summarize two other points and, and one to leverage on yours, which is that patient selection for this is, is critical. Um, we can't be operating on the wrong patients. Uh, otherwise things certainly go sideways with this technique as well. The other thing of course, is just really gentle, soft, cautious um, tissue handling, no matter whether it's from the very start of the incision or all the way into the last stitch. Um, the educated finger and an experienced finger is certainly a uh, uh, helpful, but really soft. And Nick, I was just hoping to, to close out here to ask you about two other things. The first is that you have a, a tremendously close and large family. Your wife, I hope it's okay if I say is also a surgeon. Um, you guys have an amazing group of kids. You are a family guy. H- how do you balance all of that? How do you balance life and work and music and before you say it, uh, you know you, you can't start with not not well because I, I know that's not true.
2: Um, you know the degree of my I think balance in life is something that is so critically important, and everybody uh, through my life. I'll just speak to my own experience, but I have been wildly imbalanced at various points of my life, and. Um, And I I married up, for sure, Jennifer Zeromsky, MD, surgeon, wonderful doctor, even better mother, very tolerant wife. And, you know, she keeps me in line, man. I mean, she tells me what I need to do and when I'm not doing enough, you know, for the family. So I think that having a partner in a relationship is, is, um, is really important. Jen and I, a few years ago, we we decided we we're gonna take one day off during the week. You know, we, we have six kids, the ages of our kids are 14 through five. We didn't plan to have that many, they just kept coming. And you'd think two doctors might've figured that equation out, but in any event, and that's the most beautiful thing in the whole world for both of us, you know, that's, but it's also the hardest thing. Tom Howard told me this, Chad, when I, when, you know, when Anna, when we when, when we were having our first baby, he said, congratulations, it's the best thing you'll do. And it's the hardest thing you'll do. And you know that as a, as an awesome dad yourself, I know you are. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge sacrifice and it's a sacrifice when you love what you do at work and you get the rewards for doing that at work. You got to be able to, to, to put that aside. And it, it's been really helpful for me to have, have a checkpoint, you know, check, check me with my, with my wife. Um, COVID has been really interesting. Um, we've shut down the travel. You and I were talking before we get started. We basically shut down the travel. We've been home a lot. Our, our OR log dropped for a while, you know, and it was great. And I will tell you as, as conscientious as I think that I am about trying to put my family first, man, I was way busier than I thought I was. I think this kind this kind of stuff keeps up, you know, it creeps up. And, and so just trying to to be aware of where you are, you know, periodically sitting down to, um, you know, to evaluate where you are personally with family and professionally. Jen and I, I started to tell you a number of years ago, we decided we were going to take a day off during the week in the month. And again, I mean, this, when I was training, this would have been heretical to say that we were going to do this, but the kids were in school at that time, we had some young kids, but we had a nanny helping during the day, and we just take the day and hang out. You know, a lot of times we don't do anything crazy. Maybe we go to Costco, or we go to see the financial guy periodically, or we, you know, we definitely have lunch. We have a good lunch, and and it's it's a great way to just say, okay, you know, let's slow down and, and reconnect and figure out where are we, and what's what, what do we need to address, and At nighttime, it's crazy and everybody's tired on the weekends when the kids, you know, there's 11 different sporting events and somebody's play and something. I mean, it's just, you know, it gets to be 10 o'clock at night and you're exhausted. And so finding time in the day to talk about things and to be together when we're fresh, I think has been a real, a very important thing that we've done to help keep balance in our life.
1: I'm going to immediately take that. Uh, tip and and hopefully uh, uh, when I'm a staff guy, try to incorporate that into into my life. It's such a great uh, uh, piece of advice and great tip. Um, I, I I did uh, want to dig a little further into your you know into your passion as a musician as well too. Um, and Dr. Ball has actually played for the residents your your <laughs> pancreas blues song uh, as part of his pancreatitis talk. And it's fantastic. And, and I understand that you actually recorded that with another um, pancreas surgeon, Claudio Bassi, from from Italy as well. Can you talk about your how you sustain that interest as a musician and uh, how that's been an outlet for you?
2: How much time do we got? I
1: can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. so, you know,
2: I mean, this segues from, from the balance piece. You know, I think another really important part of balance is to find something to do outside the hospital. We love what we do. You know, we're surgeons. We love doing surgery. We love taking care of patients. And, you know, fundamentally, there's no more rewarding job on the whole planet than helping another human being. But, you know, it also takes a a huge psychological and emotional toll. And I think that finding a way, you know, to express yourself creatively outside of the hospital, you know, through some artwork or whatever you do. You know, I mean, everybody, you know, a a lot of people are athletic and they run and I do that, too. And I think that that's great. But having a a creative outlet for me has been a really, really fun and important part of my life for a long, long time. And I'll tell you, you know, that also it's fun to walk in those circles because um, musicians are cool guys and they have a totally different view on the world than surgeons do. I'll tell you that. Um, Claudio Bossi is a hero of pancreatic surgery. He, um, he defined, he got the ISGPS together, International Study Group of Pancreatic Surgery, and wrote that seminal paper about, speaking of definitions, the definition of a pancreatic fistula. And so, um, and he, he, Claudio is a tremendous musician, really beautiful player, really beautiful writer. Um, and he has a lot of recorded stuff that's out there that you can must do. So Bill Traverso was, the, was in charge of the Pancreas Club the Pancreas Club was honoring Claudio Bossi for his lifetime contribution to pancreatology. And Bill called me up. If you have any knowledge of Bill Traverso, he is one tenacious guy. And he said, look, you know, Claudia is a musician. You're a musician. You should play something at the dinner. And I said, no, Bill, I don't want to do that. And he said, no, you really have to do that. And I said, no, Bill, I'm not interested in doing that. And then he called me back. He said, hey, you got to play some music. And I said, no, and he said, well, at least call Claudio, you know, and I said, fine, whatever. And so I, I emailed Claudio <laughs> and Claudio said, of course, Nick, we play some music, you know, this will be great. And I said, all right, well, whatever. We'll, so we'll play some music at the dinner. The dinner was in Washington, D.C. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll write a song, The Pancreas Fistula Blues, um, and, and play it for Claudio. And, that, and, and there it sat like that. And then it got to be like a week before the meeting and I hadn't done anything. And so I, I called up Jeff Matthews. I was, Jeff Matthews is the chair of surgery at uh, University of Chicago, great pancreatic surgeon, great musician also, and, and a really articulate um, songwriter. And I was like, Jeff, help. And he was like, ha, 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 good luck, buddy. You know. And he hung up and I was like, ah. And so anyway, so I wrote this tune on the way out to DC on the plane and Claudio and I played it at the dinner and it was beautiful. I mean, because we had a captive audience of like the 200 people in the world who would actually appreciate this tune. We're all in the room. And, so, and it was pretty fun. And then I thought, well, I'll bring it back and record it with the band. And, um, and a couple of years later, the Pankers Club was in Chicago. And so Claudio called me up and said, hey, I'm coming to Indy to record the, the lead guitar. You know, so we brought Claudio back. And so Claudio's playing the lead guitar on that track. Um, and we just had a beautiful time. And, and I think that, you know, I mean, again, there's so many layers to this. How beautiful is it for the international relationship and the music and, and things like that? But it's, um, you know, for me, music is a great release and it's a great connection with people. And it's a great creative outlet, you know.
1: The last thing uh, we'll ask you, Dr. Zoromsky, is uh, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a trainee, what would that advice
2: be? I was um I, I'll tell the audience that that Amir and Chad were kind enough to send some of these questions ahead of time, so this is not completely off the cuff. and i'm I'm really glad that you did send these questions because um, this is an important point. and i I think that. The the things that we were talking about, about balance in life, is probably one of the most important things that I missed when I was a trainee. We give up. We love what we do as surgeons. Surgical training is a major league upfront sacrifice to achieve your expertise. And there's no substitute for experience. But... You know, the way that we did it back in the day when it was every other night on call, and um, I mean, essentially giving up a decade of your life in the hospital of good years, you know, it was very sad to see contemporaries getting their, you know, lake house and boats and stuff like that, starting their families. And, you know, we're in slugging it out in the trenches. And that's, you know, I, there's no way around the, the experience piece, but, um, You know, somehow trying to dial in a little more balance up front and paying attention to your physical health, paying attention to what you eat, paying attention to um, outside of the hospital hobbies, um, and looking for mentors to help you find this balance. You know, I have been unbelievably fortunate in my life to have. So many beautiful mentors, um, Mike Saar, Keith Lulimo, Henry Pitt, Tom Howard, Attila Nakib, you know, and the list really just goes on. Jeff Matthews, you know, who was kind to me for no good reason, you know, beyond the fact that he's a great guy and he's interested in, you know, in academic surgery, you know, I, I'm, I'm, but those people, you know, they don't just fall into your life. A lot of times, it's okay to go looking for a mentor. Look for somebody who you admire. Look for somebody who you you want to emulate. Look for somebody who's got something that you want. You know, hey, Chad Ball has all these incredible diverse interests. How do I be like that? You know, and it doesn't. You you don't need to you know have a mentor that you meet with on a weekly basis. I happen to work in a lab where I got really close to Mike Sar. You know, um, but you here's you know, you can take a lot of different mentors and take little pieces from all of them. So so I think um, you asked for one piece of advice, but it's sort of two pieces of advice, which is balance and mentorship. And I I don't have a perfect equation to achieve either one of those things, but both of those things take work. It may sound funny, but it definitely, it takes work to achieve balance. It takes work to develop a relationship with a mentor. So those are the those are the ideas.
3: The surgery game. They give you a tip when you can and sleep when you can but just don't mess with it I'm talking about the pancreas yes I am it'll give you great A misery and the blues oh, look at it don't touch it man not even a little tweak next thing you know that damned old thing gonna start to leak and it'll give you great A misery when you get those great C pancreas the blues my my Hey, hey, uh-huh. one panker's fist for the show. Can't spoil your day, it'll give you great a misery, man. From
1: Great C, fist for the blues. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast in of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. We'd love to hear your feedback and comments, so send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. Or tweet at us at CanJSurge. You can check out all of Dr. Zoramski's music on his Spotify channel, and we've put the links in the show notes. Happy 2021.
3: Tracking our troubles has become quite the ring. Now, brother Claudio got us singing from the same page. We're singing about great A misery. And yeah, we are. When you get those crazy fears from the blue. Wreck your day, that juice leaking on the ceiling, and that old SMA, yeah, great A misery, it'll give you great A misery from those great and for the Seven paid, I'm glad to say Professor Bossy, you sure have made the grade. I'm talking about grade A misery, yeah. From the three T fist to the blue